Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. They say that the difference between a medicine and a poison is the dose. For example, water is crucial to life, but also fatal in overdose. Air that is too high on oxygen can severely damage the lungs. And weed that is too high in THC without enough counterbalancing CBD can trigger or exacerbate psychiatric symptoms. The pure THC products, the waxes and concentrates and shatter, for many vulnerable people, these are even more risky and destabilizing. Today, my patient Lindsay shares her journey through early onset anxiety and depression, which she initially managed with weed, but then as she used more and more and her tolerance increased, she transitioned to pure THC products. And then her medicine, her trusted friend, steadily became her tormentor. So I would say that the depression definitely came first, probably around age 12. I would, I would estimate around 12, 13 was when I first noticed the, the depression and feeling isolated and alone and, you know, your typical depressive symptoms. I think that followed after a very tumultuous time in my life, and I can go into that a little bit. Growing up, I had a mom who was very, very sick in the hospital most times and very close to death for majority of, I would say, my elementary school experience and just a very unstable environment to grow up in. And once she luckily is okay, thank goodness. But I think once the fog kind of cleared, I was left with a lot of trauma and confusion that I was just not able to understand or process at that age. And I think that that led me to very rapidly feel a lot of depression come on around, yeah, like seventh or eighth grade. And so that's really how it started. And then the anxiety, I would say, came a little bit later, early early high school. Didn't really understand what it was at the time. I didn't understand what either of them really were at the time. It wasn't something very talked about in my household the anxiety started becoming very physical, I would say, is how it first started to, to show up for me. So waking up in a sense of panic most mornings. And not knowing what that was. And not knowing, yeah. So like a fight or flight kind of situation where I'd wake up before the day had even started and just be in a complete panic with my hands numb, feet numb, feeling sick, not sure what was going on. And then you're supposed to get up and go to high school. Yeah, which I didn't do a lot of the times. My attendance was not great in the mornings because I was grappling with this and really just didn't know. And it would come with nausea a lot of the times. And I remember my mom coming into my room when I was like 14 and I had just had my first kiss with a boy like three weeks ago. And she was so sure that I was pregnant because I was throwing up every morning. And I remember her asking me, and I was like, what? <laughs> but it was the nausea that I was was feeling. So that was really how it started, and it was a consistent thing. And there wasn't a rhyme or reason of, oh, this happened, so I have anxiety. I think that that's a big differentiation mm-hmm. between stress and anxiety to me. Is- because you had a really difficult time as a little girl when your mom was so sick and maybe going to die. But interestingly, you started getting hit with this catastrophic Physical physical anxiety in high school. Yeah, Yeah. later on. And I think it was very much stored and not something I could really correlate with present events. And just like a 
neurological, I don't know, programming that I had where I just was in this state of fear all the time. And that was when it kind of started and really stayed that way pretty consistently throughout, I mean, basically up until I saw you and got a better treatment plan mm-hmm. and made changes. Main, one of the main, main changes being not smoking weed anymore. Yeah. Yeah, let's um, rewind a little bit because my memory is, you know, depression came first for you, then anxiety, and then alcohol and weed. Yeah. But, but yeah, run us through that. What, when and how did, did marijuana come into the picture and what roles did that serve for you? Yeah, I, I mean, pretty early for both weed and alcohol, I would say. I started smoking, I think I smoked the first time early months of my freshman year of high school. Um, so it was pretty hand in hand with when my anxiety started. And I think it's it was probably a, a bit of a vicious cycle of this feels good for an hour. And it was enabled, enabled me to forget what was going on and just take a load off and, you know, relax, have fun with my friends and um, just mute the stress in my brain. Mm-hmm. But I think that I didn't realize at the time it was perpetuating the problem. Mm-hmm. Do you think and in high school weed was more it was recreational more, or yeah. was it more medicinal? I think it was I think it was both. I think it definitely started out as recreational with my friends for fun, definitely not as frequent of use for the first few years and then I would say towards junior senior year was when I rem- I remember or it must have been my senior year of high school was when I smoked weed alone for the first time. And I remember leading up to that, it had been, I'm not going to hang out with my friends and then we smoke weed together because it's fun. I'm thinking, okay, who can I hang out with that I know is going to have weed and that I know is going to want to smoke weed, Mm -hmm. which I think was a bit of a transition in terms of, oh, this is fun or, oh, I'm doing this because I feel like I need this or I want this. Not the fun experience with my friends. I would be hanging out with people that I didn't even really want to spend time with. Mm-hmm. So your anxiety was bad enough in high school that sometimes you couldn't make it to school. Yeah. Yeah. Were you having full-blown panic attacks then? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. What do you remember about those? I remember my first, they, they come at different degrees. Some of them I would just be able to run to the bathroom and handle it, just you know, do some breath work and try to shut out the world, and it would eventually go away and just wait it out. The first really bad one that I had, I remember I could not catch my breath. I couldn't breathe. I could not feel my extremities. That's something that happens to me really commonly is everything goes numb in my extremities. And the stream of logic just completely dissipates when I'm in a panic attack. There's really no way for me to talk myself down and my fears or whatever it is, if I can even identify what the fear is, is so... It just feels so insurmountable, and there's just no way to be logical and, and talk yourself down. And then when I would get out of it, it would make so much, you know, it would be so much easier to understand, oh, it's okay, it's going to be okay. But when you're in those moments, you're not sharp, and you're just focusing on trying to breathe, and it's extremely disorienting. And I remember, like, hiding under my bed, just trying to catch my breath, crying, not able to think properly at all, not being able to speak. If someone were to come up to me and say, what's wrong, I wouldn't probably even be able to get words out. Mm-hmm. Did you know what those what was happening at that time? Like, could you put a word to it? Like, these are, 
or this is panic or I'm having panic attacks? I don't think I don't think at first I, I could. No, I think I just thought I was really overwhelmed. I kind of thought of depression for my that, that was kind of my diagnosis for myself that I knew I had. So I would think of it as just like a break or I was just I couldn't take it anymore kind of thing. And I don't think that I'd really put like a panic disorder or panic attack yeah. to it yet at that time. How and when did you first seek help? When I was 15, after the pan- the panic attack where I was hiding under my bed, my first real panic attack, I had mentioned to my parents that I thought that I needed some help in that way and that I thought something was going on, but I don't think it was taken as seriously. After that panic attack, I just remember walking downstairs and the look on my parents' faces when I walked down there, they were like, whoa, okay, something's wrong with mm. you. And so I said, I, I just, I need help. Yeah. I mean, and, you're, you're tearing uh, up now. Even yeah. About it. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, that was years ago, but it's still like, it just happened. Yeah. That was, uh, that's a hard, I think that's common. It's a hard thing to ask for help and it can be scary, especially if you're like me and you're very um, resistant to asking for help. It can be, scary when you get to a point that you know that you have to. Yeah. And it's also, a And I also wonder thing. the dynamic in your family added to that because, you know, all those years you were little, your mom was maybe dying. She was so sick. She's in and out of the hospital. She's getting chemo. So, you know, the spotlight was on her as it had to be. So I, yeah. I would imagine there's this kind of unspoken dynamic that you had to be okay. Yes. You had to take care of yourself. You had to be okay. You know, there wasn't really room for you to have problems because your mom is like yeah. maybe going to die. Yeah. So you just learn that again, it's nothing bad or good about it. It just was. So I can imagine that was a whole other dynamic that you're under your bed crying and, and feeling like you're losing your mind. You can't breathe, but you've just learned like you, you need to kind of button this down and yes, and figure it out yourself. I, I definitely agree with that. I think both my sister and I had to be very self-sufficient from a very young age, I think that's still true for both of us is something we're learning to reach out and find support because, yeah, that is very true. And dad was working 80-hour weeks to help pay for cancer <laughs> treatments. And so really it was just a rotation of nannies and, you know, there wasn't too much of a support system or too much space for that. So it was definitely hard for me to reach out, luckily, they got me, they found me a therapist when I was, yeah, 15. I went and saw her one time and I remember I was such a like alternative music head at the time and I just was so nervous and I was so picky and I knew I wasn't going to go back to her the second that we were 15, like when we were 15 minutes into the conversation, I knew I wasn't going back. And I think she knew too. And I remember asking her what she liked to listen to and she said Taylor Swift and I was like, this isn't going to work out because I was just so elitist and just stupid. And so you didn't go back? I didn't go back. I remember she had told me too, this was, I was, this is 
kind of a reminder of where I was at at this time is that she she told me, I know you're not probably going to come see me again, but will you at least tell me you're okay? Hmm. How long did it take you to get the courage to go back and see someone else? Freshman year of college oh, was wow. the first time. So yeah. three, four years later. Yeah. So you kind of dipped your toe barely. Yeah, and Trina. then I ran for the hills. So I did not like it. <laughs> you got the Taylor Swift answer. Like, okay, clearly treatment is not in the cards for me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 So what led you back to try again? So I was not on any medication. I tried therapy first. I didn't try a psychiatrist at that time. And then I was getting ready to go into college. And I was in a pretty severe depressive state and decided that I should look into medication. So I saw my first psychiatrist and after trying, you know, speaking with him, he referred me to the therapist that I see now who is absolutely wonderful and changed and not my a life. Swift fan. Uh, she might be. I haven't I did I decided not to go there this time. I didn't want to ruin what we had, but she's wonderful and I still see her today and that was six, seven years ago. So Mm -hmm. I got lucky in that referral and, you know, just clicked really well. But it actually was through, I I started seeking medication. And then from a few trial and errors with medication, I decided, you know, let's try a different avenue here too and see how that goes. Mm So... What was the course of your anxiety during college? I mean, overall, were things getting better? Was it more manageable? I mean, you were starting a treatment, but... Yeah, I, I, I would say the distraction of college kind of kept me busy, and it was so go, 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 that when I had moments to myself, I would, I would kind of shatter a little bit. So it made it more... Man- I think it made it manageable from a day-to-day perspective. I was able to be successful and do the things that I wanted to do. But the morning panics were always still there. That's just something I'd been very used to at that point. I was smoking every day without fail before bed every single night. Again, at this point, was weed for you more recreational? Was it more self-medication? Was it? I would say a hybrid of both. It was very social, but I also was like, if I don't, takeable right now. I'm, there's no way I go to sleep. You know, it was getting to a point where, okay, eating is, has to involve smoking beforehand or my appetite won't be there. Sleeping, I won't get good night's sleep. I'll wake up five times in the middle of the night if I don't smoke before bed. So it was becoming more from that like medicinal standpoint. Necessary. Yeah, really. Be really dependent. Dependent. Yeah. Yeah, And medicinal is like a silly word in my opinion, because it's not medicine if it causes the problems that mm-hmm. it's that it's fixing. Yeah. So um, definitely at this point, I would say started to get a lot more on the dependency side. Although I might just say a little bit about that medicine dependence yeah. thing. You know, it just reminds me, you know, I think medicines can turn into poisons. Medicines can yeah. turn into something that we're dependent on making us worse. I think a perfect example of that might be opioids. You know, opioids, thank goodness for opioids. Imagine life before before opioids. Well, that was most of human history, and it was sheer effing torture. Yeah. 
But the thing is, if you start taking opioids daily, you will become dependent on them. And as research has shown, your pain tolerance will steadily go down. You will become more and more sensitive to pain. You'll actually develop more pain and more dependence the longer you stay on opioids. And I think, you know, I think that may have been happening with you too. And we'll explore this more in a few minutes. But this idea that, that you know, originally THC slash we could have been medicine for you. Mm-hmm. It, it did help. Yeah. You know, it did help you sleep. It did help you. Uh, calm down. It did help help your anxiety at first. Yeah. Like I, I think those were all actual things. Yeah, I agree with that. I definitely think there's a lot of times when I would feel stressed and spark up a joint and feel ten times better mm-hmm. for sure. It definitely helped me in that way in a lot of ways. Um, and were you still having so, panic in college? Yes, definitely. Still in the mornings, not every single day not quite as consistently. Um, I think depression was probably more prevalent for me at this time. There's kind of a dynamic there where they fluctuate in strengths. Usually one is the predominant one and then it goes away and the other one comes back with a vengeance. But the panic was definitely still there. Being sick from anxiety was still So still in college, you're waking up some mornings just too panicked to go to class. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty often, I would say. How and when did anxiety become unmanageable for you? I think really, I mean, to a point when I could not function at all was right up before I saw you. And I guess context going into that with college, I was, I had responsibilities. I had meetings to run, I had classes to attend, presentations, so I couldn't be high all the time. COVID hit. That was obviously an anxiety-inducing time for the entire world. Plus, I went back home to live with my parents. My school shut down. I had virtually nothing to do but get high and do my joke job for two hours a day that required basically no critical thinking at all. And it was a really stressful time. I didn't know what my future held at my school. I didn't know what opportunities I wasn't going to be able to have anymore. Everything was kind of falling through. And being at home is still something that's a little bit hard for me, just same house and same walls. And I think that that has a little bit of a an underlying sense of stress yeah. that it causes me still to this day, probably. So. It does seem like maybe two things. I remember talking with you about this. Two things happened. You came home, which again, you feel loved and welcome at home, but there's yes. a lot of ghosts in your house. There's yes. a lot. I mean, that's where all the first panic happened. That's where your mom almost died. There's a lot of, yeah, I'm just like, yeah. there's a lot of anxiety, depression haunting there. And then the second thing, as you mentioned, is the space opened up for you to be able to be using all day long. Yeah. Because like, you had all this time on your hands, and one of the things that helps people be, be you know, functional alcoholics or functional stoners or whatever is that they're busy enough that they can't yeah. be higher drunk all the time. Like they'll work nine-hour days and then come home and be drunk in the evening and redo. But I think we saw during COVID, I saw that a lot in my practice that there were yeah. people who were, you know, basically kind of holding it together, and then when the, the space of COVID opened up to like go home from the university or work from home, then all of a sudden things. There, there were no breaks, there were no barriers, and people could just plunge headfirst into yeah. substance abuse. Yes, that's exactly, exactly it. So at that point, it was completely just destroying my health and my ability to function at all. I got a job. I had to request special hours because every single morning I was sick. 
So I had to meet with HR and request an hour later start just so I could give myself time to throw up in the morning and stop panicking. So that was an everyday thing. And this is happening for weeks, for months? Months. How did you come to find me? How did you... How did I come to find you? I believe that you... Well, I had been seeing a psychiatrist, and I wasn't finding any traction with any of the medicines that I had tried, which I believe is around 10 medications for both anxiety and depression. He actually ended up closing his practice, and I was recommended you from my therapist, and she said, "Uh, he's great. You guys are very similar. He has a lot of approaches that are new and innovative, which is something I really like and am interested in, and that there were certain things we had kind of discussed that what I was dealing with was addiction, and she had said that you were great with that. Mm-hmm. So, I wonder then, if I might um, just read from our original visit. Please, I would love to yeah, hear. Because I, I think there's some really interesting stuff in here. So this is the note from February um, 2022. Let's see... Chronic anxiety since age 15, long history of depression with quote-unquote countless episodes of severe depression uh, beginning in early adolescence. And then here, in the past four months, she's been vomiting four to five times a week, often in the morning when she wakes up, uh, quote, in a state of panic, end of quote. She feels, uh, quote, frozen, emotionally tired, end of quote, and anxiety consumes every day of her life. She had to leave her job due to panic attacks and vomiting. She said she's been breaking down in public places and has lost 12 pounds in the last month. Yes. Wow. Wow. It's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Bad. What do you remember about our first visit? I have some vivid memories of meeting you. <laughs> and one of the reasons I remember meeting you is because uh, I had a med student with me. Yes. And she I was so fond of you. When you left, she's like, oh my gosh, she's the best. Oh. And then she said, I hope we can help her. I said, I think we can help her. That, uh, I remember her very yeah, well. She is, yeah. In fact, this is the eval that she wrote that I'm reading. Um, but yeah, I said, I remember that you were just, I remember you just on the couch, just in complete utter agony and crying yeah. and just shaking. I remember you're just shaking, 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 shaking. And yeah. 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 What do you remember about that visit and, and the, what came after? Wow. Those notes really, it's crazy to think about that visit. I remember because I had been advised that, hey, maybe marijuana isn't doing you so well, you know, by people in the past. And I was I was like, okay, we'll see. I like it. I don't know. And then I remember I went through all of what you just described with the nausea, breaking down in public places, consuming my life. And I remember you shared a knowing look with your... Uh, med- 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 the med student, and you all—you just look me dead in the eye and you go, "Do you smoke weed?" And from that point, I was like, "Wow, okay, this m- is clearly correlated because you two had this immediate shared oh, okay light bulb moment mm-hmm. when I was describing what I was experiencing, and that was really impactful for me. Mm-hmm. And after seeing that and being at the place where I was, that was just so beyond low. Yeah. That was all it took for you to say you need to stop. 
Yeah. One of the main reasons I wanted to do this episode is one, because I just love you. I'm so happy to create this with you. And two is I knew you would do such a great job telling this, but three is like, this is so common. And so I think what you saw that flash of recognition with my med student Mm -hmm. is that she, you know, she only rotated with me for like, one day a week for 10 months or whatever. But she'd seen that a number of times. I'm sure. People with horrific anxiety that were basically breaking down um, and using weed excessively. And, you know, it had been helpful originally and then it turned on them. And so I think that was the recognition yeah. we were seeing. And it's so interesting to hear you say that that actually was helpful. Yeah. Like we we're like, oh yeah, this is a thing. <laughs> we We know what this is. It really stuck with me, truly. Just with you not knowing. I mean, I don't think I'd, really gone into any context outside of this is what I'm experiencing now. I'm losing weight like crazy. I'd been seeing medical doctors too, just because of how much it was affecting my physical health at that point. And so after hearing, you know, try this medication, try this medication, try this, are you doing this? And then for you to just exchange this look and immediately come to me with one prevalent cause was... Not necessarily what I wanted to hear as a weed addict, but also refreshing to to have something I could point to that would make it make sense, even if it was going to be very difficult mm-hmm. and painful to move on from that. Mm-hmm. It was just such a sense of relief of, okay, this if this is a cause and I can make a change here and I don't have to be like this forever, which was a very big sense of relief immediately yeah. upon our first session, honestly. Yeah. It sounds like you came, thinking of the stages of change model, it's, it sounds like you came in a contemplative way. Like it was not news to you that weed might be the culprit. Yeah. Like you didn't, my memory is you didn't fight it or argue. Like it, no. like it was already bopping around in your head. Mm-hmm. And then when I laid out the case for it, I was actually impressed how quickly you got on board. Because, you know, for a lot of people, that is a really hard message to hear yeah. that, you know, you're your trusted friend, you know, whether that's vodka or weed or whatever, your trusted friend is actually stabbing you in the back and making you worse. I agree. I I think contemplative state is a great word for it. I had tried to quit several times prior, sometimes successfully, but only ever for a brief period of time. And I don't think ever long enough to really reap the benefits, which and I think is brief, what's... Like days? Uh, like maybe a couple weeks, yeah. most. Because you really need a washout of like yeah. four or six weeks. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I never made it to the threshold of reaping the benefits, which I think is the most important thing uh, about seeing long-term success with quitting anything. But I had been trying, and I, I think that the desire to stop was there, which I think is a really big thing about stopping is you know kind of hitting a rock-bottom point which I had to do and having the desire to change and the willingness to do so, which I did not have for a very long time. And I think that the timing worked out very well with me coming to you and hearing that from someone that I respected their opinion and was knowledgeable. And that kind of ignited that for me, which could not have come any sooner. Mm -hmm. So.
Let me read this note, Lindsay. This is from, this is 13 days later. Okay, this, okay. Is, Febu- this, is, this is amazing. February 15th, 2022. Feeling much better overall. Anxiety, loss of appetite, panic, all greatly improved. Now off THC almost two weeks. Boyfriend also quit with her. Needing uh, lorazepam rarely. And that's when we started doing Lamotrigine. Because I think the depressive cycling is a whole separate issue. I think yeah, it, it relates. I but I described you as animated, expansive, Hopeful, grateful, healthy appearing. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Whereas again, 13 days earlier, you were kind of shaking uncontrollably on the couch and cry- yeah. crying throughout the whole session. Yeah. Yeah. A shell. Yeah. How did you, I mean, it sounds like we were striking in fertile soil, but you just quit. You just, is that, you just walked out, you know, after years, I mean, years yeah. of use, but, you know, many months of very heavy dependent use, you just stopped. Yeah, it was hard. And honestly, I am still so impressed and proud of myself for that. That was something that I never thought that I would be able to do. I was finishing a gram of 97% concentrate in like four days at the time that I just stopped cold turkey, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. It was not fun having somebody do it with me that was also smoking often mm-hmm. definitely made it a lot better. I'm so glad you clarified that because I've been using weed, marijuana, THC yeah. interchangeably, but this is a really important point that I've talked about a lot on the podcast that so much of you know weed slash flower slash, slash cannabis use progresses to pure THC, yes. concentrates, oil, shatter. Yes. And that's what you were using. Yes. Like, yeah, unopposed, like no CBD, just pure on yeah. straight THC, which is you know, a recipe for panic and mental breakdown. I I cannot believe how much I was using that stuff. And I will say too, you know, recovering from that was not linear. There were times like a few months later, which I really appreciated this in our conversations is that you kind of gave me not an out, but a little bit of an out in the sense of saying, listen, if you are just craving it and you know, you're going to snap, like, let's say you get there. I don't know how you worded it. This might not be exactly how you worded it, but you said, go for at least just less than five and make the CBD concentrate way higher. Mm-hmm. So what I, when I was really, you know, like towards like maybe like week three or four when the psychological dependency started getting there, I remember I found, and they were really cutely packaged too. They were so cute. <laughs> but it was like 0.05% THC or like 1% THC and then like 60% CBD, which it took me forever to find these, but they're out there. And I just did that. And it got me through whatever day. And then, you know, I it was just a little blip and it made me, it didn't make me feel like crap mm-hmm. for, you know, losing all my progress. And it was really easy for me to continue to not smoke or just buying pure CBD um, joints. That's also an option. You have to look for them. But that's also an option. I think it's important to have, it's kind of like how, you know, you're more likely to quit nicotine if you have nicotine gum. Mm -hmm. I think it's, to me, good to have options for yourself just to make it more sustainable. And I think that really helped with like the CBD and just finding alternatives just to get me out of that initial. Mm -hmm. Did you have much physical withdrawal? Yes. Yeah, what did that look like? Basically like a flu. Mm. Yeah, I had pretty basically just got sick and um terrible time sleeping really vivid dreams which 
I still, I didn't dream at all when mm-hmm. I was smoking really heavily, which I'm sure a lot of people can resonate with. You yeah. don't really dream. That's not good and for you. No, it's not. And now I'm so glad to have my dreams back because they can be pretty fun. But that was hard getting used to these crazy vivid But again, dreams. how amazing you didn't go back to it because you come and you see me once. Yeah. And you get on board like, okay, yeah, my THC addiction is ruining my life. And you just quit in your home. You can't sleep. You're having these really vivid dreams. You're sick as hell. You're like fluey, but you're, yeah. but you're sticking with it. Yeah. And I think I trust statistics and science and evidence. And that's how I'm built. So I think when presented with that, in combination with me being at complete rock bottom, I really didn't have any other options of where to turn at this point because I was, I think, weighing five pounds less than I did as a 14-year-old when I was 22 and was just completely unhealthy. I wasn't getting periods anymore because I was so malnourished, basically, because I couldn't keep anything down. so sick, yeah. And I... My hair was like falling out in clumps, basically. And so really it was, okay, I choose weed or I choose to have my life. And at least in the sense of a life that I find value in and that I can, you know, pursue what I want to pursue. So that was just a harsh crossroads that I really just had to make that decision. And it was not easy. I think finding a support system is, is hugely important. Yeah. And the fact that your boyfriend quit. Yeah. How huge is that? Because yeah. when people come to see me, they want to quit cigarettes or meth or whatever. You yeah. Know, one of my first questions is, you know, do you have a partner and are they using or yeah. the same behavior? And if they are and they're not going to change, like, oh, forget That's it. That's such so an uphill battle. Yeah. yeah. So I was very lucky. Yeah. What do you remember about the course after you quit um, the THC concentrates? What was the, you were very sick for a while, but what was the course of your anxiety over the following weeks and months? And again, anxiety is a big word. So, but for you, I mean, that could be everything from your morning nausea, inability to eat, your physical symptoms of anxiety, palpitations, um, shaking, panic. Like what did that look like in the weeks and months afterwards? Yeah. The most immediate and what kept me going after the initial like week or two of quitting was the morning nausea essentially completely disappeared. It's interesting because that was just so obviously a direct correlation. That's something that I virtually never deal with anymore at all. I couldn't tell you the last time that I was sick. I still get anxiety, but the nausea was eliminated almost immediately. And it reminds me of, okay, I started smoking when I was around 15 and I started getting these bouts of nausea in the morning around 15 and maybe it's really been the cause all along even though my usage was so much lower at that time but it was such an apparent immediate change Mm -hmm. and that's still true to this day amazing again what an interesting example of how substances and you know medications even if we overuse them we use them compulsively they turn on us so 
you know, alcohol is good for anxiety. Like, why do we serve alcohol at weddings and social events? It's because it helps people calm down and feel more confident and not feel so nervous. But, you know, if you're a heavy daily drinker, you're going to be incredibly anxious. You know, THC, one of the medical indications is nausea. That's mm -hmm. one of the approved. But if you become a compulsive addictive THC user, you have a very good chance of developing uh, terrible unremitting nausea and inability to eat. Or, you know, a lot of people start using weed because it helps them have less irritability, you know, lengthen their fuse. But again, if you become addicted to THC, it's very common that the moment your blood levels start to drop, you become mm -hmm. incredibly irritable. But people get in this mindset, like, I need to smoke because otherwise I'm a jerk, I'm an asshole, or I'm more irritable, or I can't eat, or I can't sleep, when it's really like, oh, you are treating your awful withdrawal yeah. symptoms. Yes. And uh, so it's, you know, how it turns on you, the things that it helps with in the beginning is what keeps you coming back and uh, unable to break the chain. Yeah. And I think from my experience personally and with other people in my life, it took me a long time to correlate that. I think blaming, oh, my appetite's getting worse or I'm getting so sick. Thank goodness I have weed. And a lot of people don't make the connection of you're treating your withdrawal symptoms or you're treating this. And it, it can take time and perspective to understand that that's what's going on, especially because you're in a fog all the time. As if you're using, at least to the degree that I was using, you're not in a state of mental clarity to compartmentalize this is why this is happening and this is this treatment is effective xyz it's just a blur mm -hmm. of if i hit this i feel better if i don't i feel like shit and very little scrutiny of what that actually looks like at least for me yeah because i was just high yeah what do you think people don't understand about weed and thc i think i think a lot about and i used to be a big proponent of this about the phrase where someone says, well, if you're an alcoholic, you know, you'd way rather be with a stoner than an alcoholic. And that kind of stigma of like the, sh the shaggy versus like the super scary guy with like a broken bottle in his hand. And I think that the dangers of weed are a lot more nuanced and overlooked. A lot of people still don't think that it's an addictive substance at all. Mm -hmm. That's and kind of mind blowing that's to me. It's crazy. Yeah, I, yeah. I you can't see that on social that. media all like, the time. Like some of the cannabis advocates are like, "It's not addictive," and these are all just scare stories. And I think you should come to my office for a couple yeah. days and see who I see. Yeah, I I think that that is a very misinformed opinion, and it's very common. I think I don't think that people understand. I think I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about addiction in general and the causes of it. And I think there's a stereotype around people who are addicted to marijuana that they're just lazy and they just don't care or whatever. And there's not the context of somebody struggling and going through something. I think that it's just something that's very dismissed by mm -hmm. society in comparison to other struggles that may be deemed more legitimate mm -hmm. or... Um, I wonder, I, yeah. I think, Lindsay, you were telling me you had this experience where after you had been off weed for an extended period of time, you went back and actually used some 
some potent. Yes. Because <laughs> again, just oh want to say goodness, something yes. quickly about that. I think, you know, like so often in our lives, you know, change happens slowly. So we like marriages go bad slowly or our job falls apart slowly yeah. or we slowly become dependent on alcohol. So it's like, it's like the frog in the water, you know, the temperature slowly getting turned up. Yeah. But you, you know, the frog doesn't jump, but you know, if you threw that frog in the boiling water, it would jump out quickly. That's a, yes. Yeah. And so I often, I hear the story a lot where people will really normalize their use. And then you know, when they're six, 12, 18 months clean or sober, they may go back to what they were doing. And then they come back and tell me like, Oh my gosh. You won't even believe like I smoked X or took Y and this is what I used to do multiple times a day. Yes. And, and this made me like lose my mind. Yes. That is precisely what happened. And it was at a karaoke night and I did it right before I was set to go on stage and I was unable to move. Like I flower was, or? Dab pen. Oh, dab pen. Yeah. So bold. <laughs> so bold for me to think that that was a good idea at all. I think it was probably six or seven months after I stopped and I just was, I was drinking at the time cause we were out for a friend's birthday and I just was way overconfident, ruined my night. I could not function. I couldn't speak. I immediately was just like, this is not fun. Remember this right now of how you feel as a reminder of this is not for you. And then the next day too, woke up feeling super, super anxious feeling sick, dry heaving mm. immediately the next day. And I believe the day after too. Wow. And I could feel this this sense of tension in my body carry with me for several days after that. And that was, yeah, I used to hit dab pens like that, like I was eating candy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't believe that I used to have that tolerance built up. And so that was definitely a a reminder. It's like those pathways got burned in your brain, and even though you were months out from use, it's like it only took, you know, one hit of some potent THC concentrate took you right back down the panic, nausea, yeah. desperation loop. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something where just coming to terms with a new life of this was part of my life, and it really just I don't have space for it anymore, and it's not good for me anymore, and. That's that, which is hard to come to terms with, I think, as someone who's addicted to something. But once you get a certain level of distance from it and you see it in practice and you understand the why, it makes it a lot easier to to stick with. Where are you with your anxiety now? So I know it's not like your anxiety's gone away. I mean, it's still something that you and I talk about, still something you have to manage. But I'm wondering, yeah, how would you describe sort of the the level of anxiety you deal with now? And then what are your main strategies that you use to try to keep your anxiety at bay? Yeah, I think I think that now with my anxiety, the battle seems so much easier. I still do struggle with it. Um but the panic attacks are much, much less. I would say it's more like general anxiety versus severe panic disorder, you could say. And what's really helped me is, and something that I 
am lucky to have worked through with you and years and years of therapy and TED Talks and practice is really just controlling the nature and direction of my thoughts to the best of my ability and being an observer to my anxiety rather than being an active participant in it. And I think mental clarity has really helped me with that. I feel a lot more capable of being in control. Um, and that's, I know that's a not as super easy to put into practice thing right away, but it's something that I've practiced for a long time. And now that I'm not facing these extremely intense bouts of physical anxiety, like I was before stopping, it, it feels a lot more manageable. There's still days where it sucks and I just go outside and go for a walk and try not to think about it or journal or, you know, it's definitely probably going to be something I face likely for the rest of my life. Um, but it is, it just feels like such a more manageable, small part of my life versus everything about my life. Mm -hmm. And that alone makes me feel, it feels like I've been training for this. So I, yeah. I'm in like the, the, uh, the little leagues now yeah. or something. Yeah. From my end. Yeah. I've seen such a transformation in your overall level of anxiety. And I think I see it as you just taking such better care of yourself. Yeah. And that's the way I've tried to counter with you. It's like you sleep now, regular hours. You try to, you, if you use substances, you try to use them very mindfully. Yes. You eat regularly. You are careful about who you hang out with and the kinds of people that you yes. form friendships with. Are they the kind of people that fill your battery or suck your battery? Are they the kind of people that bring out the best in you or the worst in you? And it's been, you know, over only three years, it's been interesting to see like, wow, you've really just grown up into a woman who has taken charge of like, I need to take care of myself. And if I do, yes, you will still have bouts of anxiety, but it's nothing like when everything was off the rails. And when I met you, there was no sleep, no eating, no schedule, no, it just, you know, round the clock THC and misery. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, uh, I like hearing your perspective on this too, because I think it's been a series of slow changes over the past few years, all of them really being lifestyle related. And I do have my anxiety medication. I do still take that for really my physical anxiety symptoms. I think that also I do EMDR therapy to help process some trauma. Um, and that's been really helpful, I think, in helping with the physical anxiety too. So doing a combination of physical and mental care and being really cognizant about my surroundings, which was a slow journey and a journey that I'm very much still on. But I, I definitely agree. I think just overall prioritizing myself and my health over some dopamine would be the best summary. If you found this episode meaningful, please share it with someone who might benefit. If you haven't yet written us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use, please do so. It helps Back from the Abyss spread far and wide. And as always, Chris and I welcome your comments and questions. You can reach out to us through my website, craigheacockmd.com. <laughs>